time in these books. And if you want to find Haggai, the easiest way is to go to Matthew and then go back three books, okay? That's the easiest way to find it. Just go to Matthew and then go back a few pages. If you don't know where Matthew is, then um, wander around. You'll find Haggai eventually. It, it's in there somewhere. Uh, but we're going to look actually at a particular passage this morning to launch a new series. This series will launch us, or actually will, will last us, through Easter. Easter Sunday, we'll have an Easter sermon. And the week after Easter, we will start the book of Esther. And I'm excited to pick actually that book of the Old Testament and work through it verse by verse. It's going to be a lot of fun. But from now till Easter, we're going to spend a few weeks uh, going through this series called Questions God Asks. The story behind this is one of our group leaders about, I don't know, 18 months ago, two years ago, uh, they messaged me and they said, hey, I found this curriculum. It's called Questions God Asks, and I'd, I'd like to use it with our group. What do you think about it? So I looked at it. And I thought, not only is this a great curriculum you should use with their group, and they did. So the 15 that were in this group, I'm sorry, you'll get a different angle, but you've worked through some of this before. I also thought, man, that's a genius idea for, for a series to actually kind of survey some topics in the Bible and, and take it by topics. And the idea is that you look at places where God actually stepped up and addressed humanity and asked a direct question. And there aren't that many places where he does this. There, we're not going to be able to look at all of them, but there are a few that I want to look at with you for the better course of a month here and actually take them turn by turn. Each week will be very different in a different topic and really will hit us in a different way, but I'm excited about it. And this morning we're going to start in Haggai chapter number one, verse number one. I'm going to encourage you, I'll be up front, I'm going to encourage you to take some notes or to jot some things down. We'll work through some history, not a lot of history, but a little bit of history and a bit about this book, and if you'll jot some things down or type them in your phone, it will help you remember more fully the scope of biblical history and some things that will help you as you study your Bible on your own time. So let's look at Haggai chapter number 1, verse number 1, and let's read it together. Here's what it says. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto... Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, saying, now let's just stop right there, okay? What did we just read? Because if you're not careful, you just read a whole bunch of names and dates and blah, 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 jibber, jibber, jibber. Let's get to the meat. But there's a lot there, okay? What this says is when this came. So this tells us actually the day, the day that Haggai's first word came to this governor and high priest, The day is actually August the 29th, 520 B.C. You can look at Darius the king, when he ruled, when those years were, what the months are, what he says here, and it's August the 29th, 520 B.C. Now, a lot of people are amazed at at that sort of specificity. Out of curiosity, how many of you are August babies? How many were born in the month of August? Don't be shy, August babies. How many, was anyone born on August the 29th? Does anyone have that birthday? Sherry? All right, we have one on your birthday. You didn't know this, but your birthday is a celebration of the day that the word came from Haggai the prophet. So here you go. This is for you this morning, Sherry. A lot of people are amazed that there's like that sort of specificity. And and people who have never read the Bible oftentimes think that the Bible is just a big book chocked full of vague, wise sayings. You know, that it's all the book of Proverbs or something. But you have to know that the Bible is rooted in history. That it's as true as the newspaper, or at least the portions of the newspaper that are true. That, that it, the, it's, it's supposed to be rooted in fact, is the point. It's not supposed to be, you know, made up and just, you know, people's opinions the end. This is actually rooted in history. On August the 29th, 520 B.C., this word came. You say, what's the significance of August the 29th, 520 B.C.? What does that mean to me? Why should I care about that? Let me give you a very, very brief historical background, okay? Let's just ignore the first, you know, 2,000 years of human history, and let's ignore Adam to Noah to Abraham. Let's ignore that, okay? Let's even ignore the next 100 years of the founding of the nation of Israel. Let's ignore Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Let's ignore Moses and the Exodus and the Ten Commandments and, and, and coming through the wilderness wanderings. Let's ignore Joshua and conquest and judges and getting settled in the, in the land. Let's ignore the United Kingdom and King Saul and King David and King Solomon and just pick it up at Solomon, okay? 
Solomon rules and reigns, and Israel is at its zenith, it's at its peak. They're united, they're unified, they're rich, they're settled, they're comfortable. Solomon dies, and shortly thereafter, in 925 B.C., the nation of Israel actually splits into two nations. They split into what you could think of as the north and the south. And the north keeps the name Israel. The south goes by the name of Judah. The north is ten of the twelve tribes of Israel, and the south is two of the twelve tribes. These two kingdoms then operate independent from each other. They have their own sort of uh, rulers. They have their own places of worship. They theoretically have the same documents, the law to guide them, but they, they operate differently. The north is bad king after bad king after bad king, just, just always terrible, frankly. The south is a mixed bag. The south has a little bit of good kings that rule, but mostly bad. And what you find is that the northern kingdom actually is punished by God first, and they are actually conquered by Assyria. This happens in 722 B.C., 200 years after they split. Assyria comes along, and they, they dominate the northern ten tribes. And those ten tribes more or less disappear. They're gone. And the rest of, of the history focuses on the south, focuses on Judah, the, the two tribes that are left. If you go another 150 years, Babylon comes and conquers the south, Judah. This was something that was foretold by many of the prophets, including Isaiah, in grave detail, that this would happen to the people if they didn't repent, if they didn't turn to God. And in fact, it did. In 597, Babylon came and conquered, but they conquered uh, lightly. They took over and they said, we're going to take some of your best people back with us to Babylon. We're going to take Daniel. We're going to take Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We're going to take them with us. But we're going to leave your walls. We're going to leave your temple. We're going to leave you to, to do your thing. You just are now subject to us, and you pay us taxes, and we rule you. Judah continued on that track for a few years, but very quickly they did not want to do that any longer. They decided, no, we want to reassert our independence, and we want to have a revolution, and we don't want to be ruled. So Babylon came back in 539 B.C., and this time they conquered with a heavy hand. And when they conquered, they broke down the walls, they destroyed the temple, they plundered everything, they burned the temple to the ground, and they devastated Judah and especially Jerusalem. And they took many, many, many captives with them into Babylon. It was the Babylonian captivity is what it's called. And there were a few, a remnant that remained there, but most were transported away. Fast forward a few years after that, and Babylon actually gets conquered. Babylon gets conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire and Cyrus in 539 B.C. This is significant because 150 years prior, a man by the name of Isaiah had prophesied that not only would the Jews be carried away in captivity, but there also would come a king by the name of Cyrus, and this Cyrus would release them to go back to their homeland. And sure enough, Cyrus, completely unbeknownst to him that Isaiah had said this, releases the Jewish people, if they want to, to go back. So let's just stop there for a minute. The fact that this happened is supernatural, right? It would be as if Thomas Edison in his journals 150 years ago said, there will be a president of the United States named Donald J. Trump in 150 years, and in the year 2018, he will change the capital of, uh, or the, the embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. If we read that in Edison's notes, we'd be like, what else did he write, right? Like, that's amazing. Like, how could he know that with, with accuracy? We'd, we would naturally think there's something supernatural going on there, right? But, but God had predicted this would happen. So Cyrus does. He lets the Jewish people go back, and roughly 50,000 Jewish people go back to rebuild, the, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. Now, a lot of people remained. A lot stayed there in Babylon, but 50,000 went back. You can read about this in Ezra chapter number 1. They get back, and they immediately, they're energized, they're, they're pumped up, and they begin the work of rebuilding the, the city. And they start at the temple, and they get the foundation laid for the temple, and they build an altar, and they begin to sacrifice, and they begin to worship, and then the neighbors hear that this is happening. They see them rebuilding, they see them, they hear them worshiping, and the neighbors come and they begin to pressure them 
number one with violence and number two with political pressure, to stop. And sure enough, the people do. They succumb to the pressure and they stop building the house of God. Sixteen years go by. Sixteen years go by and Haggai, the prophet, steps onto the scene on August the 29th, 520 B.C. Sixteen years after they had returned, sixteen years after they had started rebuilding, sixteen years after they had built the altar and begun to worship, and Haggai addresses two people specifically that are representatives of the nation, and he addresses, number one, Zerubbabel, the political leader, the governor, and number two, Joshua, not Joshua and Jericho, not that Joshua, same name, different guy, the high priest. So he steps up and says, God wants me to tell you the political and the religious leaders. He wants me to tell you this, and he delivers a hard-hitting word. He delivers a word, I'm going to be honest with you this morning, that is intense. This sermon's going to have like one gear, and the gear is just kind of in your face. Because th- this is the nature of what he says. It's a word that honestly, we may be tempted to shy away from because it can, it can directly impact us and can really challenge us and step on our own toes. So here's the word. You ready for it? I believe you are. I believe you're big enough and strong enough to handle it. Here it is, verse number two. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So let's just stop there. You know it's bad when God refers to his people as this people, right? Not my people, not my beloved. This people, this people say this. They say it's not time to build my house. Verse 3, then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, and here's the question. Here's the question God asked the people. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie in waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. To understand what God is asking, you have to understand verse 4. That's the question. To understand verse 4, you have to understand the word sealed. He says, is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses? That's a word we don't use very often, okay? This isn't sealed, S-E-A-L-E-D, like I sealed an envelope by licking it. This is sealed, C-I-E-L-E-D. If you type that into your word processor, red squiggly lines will show up underneath of it because it's a word we don't use anymore. This word means just simply to overlay something with wood. And what Haggai says is, is it time for you to go to your houses and to begin to overlay your houses with wood? Meanwhile, the house of God lies in waste. Now, the thing about Israel is that there's not a lot of wood. The thing about Jerusalem and and, and Judah, where they were at, is that there's tons of stone, but there isn't much wood. If you have ever spent time in Jerusalem or time really in any part of Israel, you will know that forests are hard to come by. You really don't see them. This is why in the, in the Bible you see over and over again mentioned the cedars of Lebanon. And you're left kind of wondering when they go to get the cedars of Lebanon all the time, like, why do you want the cedars of Lebanon? Are they that much better smelling than your own cedars? Like, why go all that way to a different country to go get your wood? I, I mean, it can't smell that great, can it? And the answer is because they didn't have cedars there. It, wood's hard to come by. You, ha- you have to really, you, you have to go a long way to get in bulk the wood that you would need. And, and Haggai says, this is what you're doing. You're using wood to upgrade your own homes, and the house of God lies in waste. Now, there is a chance, some have speculated, that the people actually used the materials that were meant for the temple. When they were allowed to return back home via Cyrus's decree, Cyrus also gave them provisions to go back and rebuild the city. And many have speculated that they actually took the wood that was intended to be, to be used for the house of God and the temple of God, and that they gave it to themselves and then said, oh, we'll pay God back one day. You know, we'll, we'll get around to it one day, but never did. Whether they did that or not, I do not know. Here's what I do know. I do know that Haggai steps onto the scene and he says... You're building and building and building and building your own. Meanwhile, the house of God lies in waste, and you're telling yourself that you'll get to it eventually. You're telling yourself that one day the time will come. Meanwhile, you built your houses, and now you're running around upgrading them. You didn't just build them. Now you got Chip and Joe over at your place trying to design a shiplap interior for yourself so that you can, you know, so that you can trick it out and make it awesome and make your house as good as it can be. Meanwhile, the foundation of the temple of God is just that. It's a foundation. 
There's not a hammer being swung. There's not a nail being driven. There's not a board being sawed. Nothing is happening to the temple of God, and you're over here sitting pretty. And what Haggai says is, wake up. This this is designed to be a shot across the bow. This is designed to be a moment where he says in verse number 5, consider your ways. Stop what you're doing. Pump the brakes. Think about it for a minute. Think about it. Put your brain in gear. Is this okay? Is this right? Is this fitting that you would do this and keep giving to yourself and prioritizing yourself over and over and over and and not go build the house of God? It's a question of priority. And what he says is, you are the people who were enslaved. You are the people who who were captive. And God, in his providence and in his In his miraculous wisdom, he set you free. He redeemed you. He loosed you. And he gave you supernatural provision to go build into his kingdom. And now you're building into your own kingdom, not his. And he's trying to draw them back to when you you were first set free, you were pumped. You were fired up. You were ready to go. You got to the city and you sacrificed and you worshiped and you built and you invested and you rejoiced and you laid a foundation and now something or someone has come along and have told you that it's not time for God but it's time for yourself and that you should be in first place and you just laid down and died. And you're telling yourself it's it's for a little while, temporary, just for a time. Eventually we'll go around to it. We'll build into his kingdom soon. And what he says is it's been, it's, it's been almost 20 years, guys. Almost two decades. 16 years. And you're still in the same boat. Do you see how your priorities are out of whack? Do, do you see what's happening? Now, to be clear, these guys that Haggai is addressing, they're good guys. Th- these are good dudes. These are men who left the comforts and, and really the, the rhythms that they had established back in Babylon, and they came, a 900-mile journey. They came to Jerusalem with a heart to build. They knew it would be hard. They, they knew that it would be extremely difficult to rebuild the city, but they were committed, and they wanted to. They were, they were dedicated to God. There were many people who stayed back who didn't want to come with them. These are good guys, but they need a wake-up call. And this teaches us very simply that even the best of God's people at times need to realign their priorities. Even the best of God's people who love him sincerely from the heart, from time to time, need to, to kind of get a punch to the gut to say, wake up, what are we doing? And he says, time out. You're, you're, you're building your own homes. You're, you're not concerned about God. You say, Pastor, you know, what's the big deal about that? Like, they're building their own homes. I mean, good for them. Like, they're family men, right? I mean, they're building their homes. They're not building bars. They're not building casinos. Like, take it easy, you know? They're good for them to invest in their homes for their families. Now, you will find no bigger advocate for families and, and you being a family man, you being a family woman, than, than yours truly. I will be a, a tremendous advocate for that. But home works best when God is the first priority. That's how he designed it to work. It works best for when you want to be a family man, you first need to be God's man. If you want to be a family woman, you first need to be God's woman. That's how he set it up. There's nothing inherently wrong with building your house. There's nothing inherently wrong with even overlaying it with wood. But it is wrong when it begins to trump God. Okay? Now, before we get to work on this, I do want to be clear. I have never been, nor will I ever be, the pastor who tells you, You should feel guilty about all these different things that you didn't do because I wanted you to, okay? I've I've never been the pastor that says, you know what, we have have all these services, and we have Bible studies, and we have groups, and they're serving, and there's this, and there's that, and if you don't do it all, then you you should feel guilty, and you're not prioritizing God. I've never been the guy to want to take a verse and use it to beat you up and to make you just do what I think you should do, okay? The, the, The intention of this is not to say, Ladies, okay, my wife's doing a ladies' Bible study tomorrow night. If you're not a ladies' Bible study, obviously your priorities are wrong. Come on. Bible study or stay home and kick it and watch TV. You tell me, who, who do you really love? Okay, that's not the point. The point is not to guilt trip you that you don't come to prayer meeting tonight, okay? I'm, I'm not trying to leverage this and say, if, if you don't come tonight, then I'll know who Haggai was talking to. Duh. That's, I'm not doing that, okay? I've, I've never been that guy. 
But I have been, and I always will be, the guy that says, God needs to have first place. Jesus needs to have preeminence. And that may mean something a little different to you than it means to me, but I do know this, that if he is in first place, it will practically show up in your church attendance, in your finances and your checkbook and how you prioritize your money, in your schedule and your calendar and what you have and how cluttered it is, and if there's time for serving or volunteerism or investing in other people, it will show up if you prioritize them. I know that. I'm not going to be so prescriptive as to tell you, well, it has to be this, this, and this. You can work that out with the Holy Spirit of God on your own. I know this, though, when you prioritize Him, it shows up. It does. So you apply this to what it means for your life, and, and I'll, I'll br- paint with a broad brush so that you can do that. This morning, I, I, here's what I want you to know. And here's my prayer for, for today. This, honestly, this sermon's a little intense. There'll be some other questions God asked. It'll be a bit more lighthearted, and it will be a bit more uh, just encouraging. This one, not so much. But if you have inverted your priorities, if your interests are completely one-sided in your favor, if your enthusiasm for God is waning day after day, week after week, year after year, because you're focused on yourself, then my prayer is that God in his kindness will cause your soul to sense how deeply wrong and egregious this is and that you actually, through his grace, would rekindle the flame of commitment. That's my prayer. This, this may not apply to you. You may say, Pastor, question next week's for me. I walked in fired up for Jesus, okay? But it may apply to you. And, and I, don't, I honestly don't think that I need to be super detailed to know if it applies to you or not. I I honestly believe that I don't have to give you a rubric to know if this is happening or not. Okay, so help me understand. What's the formula? Out of 52 Sundays, how many do I have to be here? Am I allowed to miss one for a vacation? Am I allowed to miss two for a vacation? What about with weather? Can I do 45 out of 52? What about 40? Is 40 a bad number? I'm not going to be that prescriptive. Honestly, I think you know. I think it's that simple. I think you know if you're prioritizing God or not. Like right now, where you sit, your internal lawyer might want to make little excuses for yourself, but I think you know. I think you know if you walked in the door saying, Lord, I love you. I want you in first place today. I want to learn from you. I want to be with your people. I want to worship you. Lord, Lord, I, I want to prioritize you above all else. Or if you walked in the door today or tuned in online today, humdrum going through the motions, I guess I should, it's just the right thing to do, maybe I'll get to see my friends, that'd be good, this, this is just what I do. You know where you're at, okay? It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't take me needing to have an interview with you personally to get to the bottom of that. So let's stop, let's do what Haggai says. Verse 5, let's stop, let's think about it. Let's think about, are we doing this? Okay, if you know the answer to that, why do we do this? Why is it that we have a propensity to downgrade God on the priority list? And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we do. I think that Haggai gives us at least three reasons in this text why these people did. And I think that would be a good place to start for us to see maybe why we do and how we can circumvent this so that it doesn't happen more regularly in our lives, that we can cut it off at the pass. Here's why Haggai says these people did. First, they had a problem of popularity. If you look in verse number two, here's what he says. This people say, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. What's he saying? The polls show that it's not time. The popular vote says, nope, we're still good, we can get to it later. Now, a democratic republic, I think, is a fantastic way to run a nation. There's other ways to run a nation. Some are are miserable, in my opinion. Some are okay. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of ways to run a nation. It's not to say that, that, you know, if you're American, that's inherently better than being from England and you're under a monarchy. But I'm particularly fond of a democratic republic. I like democracy. I think it's done a lot of good for our country. I think it, it, it's perpetuated freedom. I, I think that it, it has a tendency to, to keep government off of the people and from trampling them. I, I like that. But democracy is not a great way to run your life all the time. There are moments where a democratic republic won't cut it. 
where the popular opinion or the majority says this, and God steps onto the scene and says, uh-uh. That's what's happening here. The majority of people, if you took a vote, the survey said, not time. We're good. Put yourself first. Wood panel your houses. God says, it's been time. It's overdue. It's not that it is time. It has been time. Do you see the difference there? Now listen, if you're not careful, even as a Christian, you can find yourself very easily going with the flow, going with the prevailing cultural mindset, finding yourself just drifting through life, adopting the ideology of the people you work with, the people that are in your neighborhood, uh, your family that's unsaved. You can very, very easily find yourself setting your priorities based on what is popular or normative culturally, but find that that's a terrible way to prioritize God. There are many things that the world prioritizes over God. In our culture, the top of the list, number one, probably is money. Because with money comes power, comes prestige, comes authority, comes this, this sense of security from negative circumstances. And that, for many people, is the number one ambition. It's what consumes them. It's what drives them. That they want to, to go for the gusto and get all they can. They want to nab a piece of the action while they can. They want, to, they want to be on the lookout for themselves. Who cares about others? Who cares about spending my time volunteering or helping somebody else? Why? When I can make a buck. Jesus said that this would be a trap for his people in Matthew chapter number 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus said this. He said, therefore, Christians... Take no thought for uh, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, this is, we like to focus and fixate on verse number 33. It's a great verse. But there's this little phrase in verse number 32 that we just go right past. For... All these things do the Gentiles seek. What, what is Jesus saying? What is he teaching? He's teaching that pagan people who don't know God stockpile their excess so that they can hedge against not having the basics in the future. That's what he just talked about in verse number 31. What you'll eat, what you'll drink, where you'll be clothed, the basics of life. What he's saying is they have to get it all on their own because they don't have a God they can depend on to give it to them. When they are approaching life, they have no thought of God's divine aid, so they don't depend on him. They depend on themselves. That's normal for, for the unsaved world. That's normal for pagan people. But contrary to that, it shouldn't be normal for God's people, right? That's what he says in verse 33. Don't act like them. Don't, don't do that. Don't just have the popular opinion of what people do and how they prioritize money or their life. Don't let that be what you base your life on. That's for the world. That's not for Christians. For a Christian to approach life that way is ludicrous. We take our money and our stuff and we prioritize it differently because we're his people. And we understand and believe in eternity, right? We believe that there is an eternity, and as such, there are eternal rewards. So that we, when we invest into the kingdom of God, someone else looks and says, that's stupid, that's a waste. Why would you just give all that money away, use it for yourself? We say, no, we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. We understand that we can't put money in first place because to do so would be to divide our loyalties. Because we can't serve God and mammon. We can't serve God and money. Can't do both at the same time. To try to do both, or to try to put them both at the top of the list, is to make our service to God divided. And we want undivided loyalty to God, so we, we put God above that. That's what Christians do. And what he's saying, very simply, is just consider your ways. Think about it. Do you do what everybody else around you does? Do you find yourself keeping up with the Joneses just because it's what people do? Do you find yourself wanting the car, the clothes, the phone, the this, the that, the other, just because everyone else around you has it? I think it'd be appropriate to ask, like, where does the majority of your discretionary money go? Where does that go? Or, maybe better yet, is there discretionary money? And if not, is that because you've overextended yourself and committed yourself to this home and then that car and then that car and then this subscription and that subscription? And, 
and now you've, you've crowded out God? No, my budget just won't, just, just won't make it happen. I, th- I, think, I think you had something to do with that. Maybe. I, th- I think it's fair, right? What about your, your discretionary time? Is there discretionary time? Or are you a workaholic and you have to work 70 or 80 hours a week? Or no, I work a normal job, but then I want to get a second job. And then I want to commit myself to this project and that project and that project. And now I'm so busy where I don't have time for God's people. I don't have time to serve. I don't have time to help. This sermon is not designed to be a plug for our uh, Easter and music. We're excited to start back choir and orchestra and those sorts of things. And uh, I'm supremely looking forward to that. The video just said just a minute ago that, hey, if you want to show up tonight, Matt, what time was it tonight? What time's practice? Five o'clock was practice tonight. Then you can show up, and, and we're, that'll at least launch by Easter, and we'll have that back up and running. And many of you thought, oh, man, I'd love to do that. I can play an instrument. I'll ha- I have a decent voice. I could sing. I'd love to be a part of that. But, I mean, I don't have time. I'm not saying you have to do that or you're not right with God, but I am saying, like, let's, let's just think about it. Do we just go with the flow? Do we, just, do we just follow what culture tells us to do? Or do we actually stop and consider our ways and make sure God's first? It's not just the problem of popularity. You also find this problem of procrastination. Verse number two, same thing. This people say, there was the popular vote, but here's what they said. What did they say? This time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So here's what they did not say. They did not say, building God's temple is stupid. Who wants to do that? Lame. They didn't say that. They did not say, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't build it. I'll never get around to it. That's, that's not at all what they said. The people of the community did not question that they should rebuild the temple at some point in the future. On that, there was a general consensus. What they did say was that it wasn't the right time. That we'll get to it one day. That, yeah, I, I would love to. Good idea, God. Yeah, mm, sounds good. That would be awesome, but not now. And in my pastoral experience, and even in my own personal experience, this is one of the primary excuses that we use to defend our lethargy and our, our, our apathy towards God and His work. And I know that sounds harsh, but it's just, it's just honest. That we are very crafty at telling ourselves, I will one day, and then 16 years go by, and we're still upgrading our own homes, but not, you know, talking about the house of God. We do this all the time in, in just church in general. There are some of you that are sitting right here or are listening right now that have thought to yourselves now for months, for months, I've, yes, I will get more involved in church. I will get plugged in eventually. I mean, I'm coming. I'm just kind of learning. I'm sitting here. I, I just I want to be off to the shadows right now. And that's fine for a period of time. I understand you need to investigate a place and find out if it's right for your family. I get that. But when we get to six months, eight months, a year, two years, and you're still telling yourself, oh, yeah, that intro class where I can get more connected and they'll help me get more connected to the church, you know, I'll get to that one day. Oh, groups, yeah, 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 you mentioned that again. That's been like two years now, like all the time. You're talking about that. I, I, one day I'll, I'll get in one of those. If that's just dragging on and on and on and on, come on. Let, let's just stop and consider our ways and be honest that we're procrastinating, that we're doing what these people did, that we're sitting on our hands. The opportunity to serve comes, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and we don't, and we don't, and we don't. I think that's problematic. Some of you have been planning to really pray, to spend time with God, to have a regular rhythm of communing with Him and fellowshipping with Him, and you used to, and you want to, and you're gonna, but how long has it been? God's been sitting at the table for two, being stood up by you, not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, for a long time, waiting on you. And you keep getting busier, and you keep adding this to the schedule, and you keep, you know, adding this priority and adding this, adding this project. The TV shows keep streaming. The video games keep getting played. The social media feed keeps, you keep up with that. You keep reading the books. You keep having time with friends. Meanwhile, you're gonna. You're, you're gonna get to God. I, I think we have to stop and think about the words of Haggai and say, man, maybe that's meant for me. Some of you have been intending to be generous for a long time. 
you know, once I get the promotion and there's a little more margin in the budget, then I'll be generous. Once the kids get back in school and then we can both work, then, then it'll be a lot easier, and, and then we'll have more discretionary money. Once the car gets paid off, once the house gets paid off, in the meantime, did not the standard of living keep increasing? Maybe not. Maybe for you, your standard of living downgraded over the past five or ten years. For most of you, though, probably not. You figured out a way to upgrade the car. It was, I mean, Pastor, it was three years old. I mean, the tires wore out. It was the first set of tires that wore out, new car. You know, that's what you do. The phone was fine, but you took that in. Verizon told you you needed an upgrade, right? 18 months. You had to, so you went, you upgraded that. You spent a few hundred dollars there. You subscribed to this. First it was Netflix, then it was Disney Plus, then it was Hulu, then it was Pandora Plus, then it was ESPN Plus, then it was this. And now how many subscriptions you got? Right? There goes $80 a month, $100 a month. I know DirecTV kept increasing the price on your channels too, and now it's hundreds of dollars. I mean, my kid's six. They need a cell phone with unlimited data. I mean, every six-year-old has it now, Pastor, right? We find a way, don't we? Let's, let's take a trip to the honest planet, okay? Don't we find a way to upgrade and, to, and for our, our standard of living to keep getting better and better and better? Meanwhile, we've, we've just pushed God off to the side and we haven't prioritized generosity? Don't tell me the budget won't allow it. I don't think God or Haggai or myself believe it. We've, we've done this with COVID. This has been wickedly fantastic over COVID. I've seen this so much. You know, we, we started out, and I think with sincere, genuine hearts, like the, the whole country of, we don't know what this thing is. This is crazy. It's the big bad wolf. It's going to eat us all. Who knows? Let's, let's trust in God, not be scared, but let's respect it. da 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 so let's, let's spend eight weeks, right? Let's, let's flatten the curve. And let's, let's work from home and, and close down restaurants and stay away from each other. And let's spend eight weeks, right? And the eight weeks came. And then, you know what? Okay, eight weeks are done. Let's, let's get back to life somewhat. Let's come to church. And to be clear, okay, if you're tuning in right, if you're here, then you may get a hall pass on this one. If you're tuning in, maybe this is for you. If, I don't say it again. I say it almost every week. If you're away for health reasons, I love you. I support you. No guilt at all. But if you're away for habit reasons and you're lazy, be honest that you are and, and, and work it. Change it. Eight weeks came and went. Oh, summer's busy. I mean, we're going to travel some. I mean, vacation, spring break, that got canceled because of COVID, so we have to rearrange that. And, I mean, the schedule's weird. So, I mean, once summer's over and the kids get back in school, then it'll be normal. You know, th then we'll, we'll recommit. The, it'll be easier for the schedule. So school came. I mean, the holidays are just around the corner, and I'm concerned about my, my you know, my grandmother and my parents, and that's, I'm not criticizing that, but I'm concerned about them, so I'm, you know, I'm just going to wait till after the holidays. So the holidays came and went. Now it's January. I mean, the vaccine's almost here. I mean, I'm going to wait till like, everyone, in, you know, gets the vaccine. There's herd immunity and then that. And I don't know what's next, but I can promise you something's next. The South African strain, the English strain, the Scandinavian strain, I don't know. Something's next right? It hasn't been 16 years, but for many people, it's going on 16 months. And we're telling ourselves one day, one day, one day, one day. Meanwhile, we're at home and we're getting some, we're tuning in, we're getting some, but if we're honest, our spiritual soul is shriveling up a little bit because God didn't make you to exist outside of community and outside the churches. He didn't, he didn't intend for you to live stream heaven and he didn't intend for you to live stream church every time, right? I want to go to heaven. Like, I, I don't want to zoom it. There's a difference. Can we admit that? There's a difference between zooming heaven and going to heaven. I want to go. There's a difference between live streaming church and going to church. And once again, I want to be clear. I'm not guilt tripping you if you're away for a health reason. I, I support you. But if it's just a habit and you just love your PJs that much, that's problematic, right? I think it's fair. I think it's fair to say, let's stop, let's consider, let's say, are we telling ourselves, I will, I will, I will, I will. Their procrastination wasn't that unique. That's what I'm saying. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. Lastly, the problem of perspective. There's this interesting moment in verse number five where Haggai says, now therefore thus saith, and he says these three words, the Lord of hosts. Everybody say the Lord of hosts. That was pretty good. Good job, class. The 
the Lord of hosts. What's the Lord of hosts? It's a unique term for God, for his deity. It's the Lord Sabaoth. This, this term literally means that God is grand, that God is big, that God is strong and majestic and immeasurable and infinite and limitless and powerful. It's what it's meant to communicate. Martin Luther actually used this term in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. When he penned the words, our striving would be losing, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord Sabaoth is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Luther employed the, the use of the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth, in a beautiful way. He said that means that he is from age to age the same. He's eternal. He's the one that wins the battle. He's the one that has the power. That's what it means. And oftentimes, we deprioritize and downgrade God not, not because popular opinion, not because even we're, we're procrastinating. Many times it's just because we have the wrong perspective and our theology hasn't sunk in. And I don't want to be reductionistic and oversimplify this, but oftentimes it is as simple as wrong thinking, wrong priorities, right thinking, right priorities. Many times it's that simple that we think wrongly about God and who he is and how powerful he is, and as such, we try to seize for ourselves the power, the control, the, the, the priority, and we, and we tend to switch places and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be number one, and God, you can take a back seat. I know we wouldn't say it in those terms, but it's oftentimes what we do. Instead of saying, let's just think a minute about the, the Lord of hosts. Let's just think for a minute that he's, he is the provider of everything. He owns everything in this life and in eternity. He owns it all. He has it all. He controls it all. And he's not just this, this big, vast, powerful controller. He's a father and a loving father at that, right? That he loves us and adopted us and he didn't, he didn't leave us to be spiritual orphans. He didn't leave us in a phone booth somewhere. He cares for us and he took us in. And if he loves us and cares for us and all the resources of eternity are at his disposal, would it not make sense that we don't try to manage it all ourselves, that we actually put him in first place and we allow him to control? That seems like a logical conclusion to me. And oftentimes we just don't think that way. When your perspective of God becomes warped, your interests become inverted and you begin to prioritize yourself over him. Jesus actually echoed this sentiment in Matthew chapter number 7 towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he said this. He said, what man is there of you who when his son asks him for bread, he'll give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? What, what does he say? He says, you know in human terms what it's like to want to care for your, for your children? If they ask you for a rock, you're going you're gonna to give them bread? Just say, human fathers know when, ch when children seek something and it's something that they need, that they're going to rise to the occasion. They're going to meet that need. And if you know how to do that, and he says you're evil, you have a sin nature, how much more will the non-evil one do it? How much more will the holy righteous one do that? Doesn't God support his own? Isn't it his character? That's what he's saying. The character of God, who God is, doesn't he care for his own? This is why Paul would say that my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. This is why the psalmist would say that I have never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. John Stott on, on this particular passage said these words. He says to become preoccupied with material things in such a way that it engrosses our attention, it absorbs our energy, and it burdens us with anxiety, that is incompatible both with Christian faith and common sense. It's distrustful of our Heavenly Father, and it is frankly stupid. Now, he said it, not me, okay? I'm just quoting him. But I, I think his words are pretty spot on. 
when you prioritize yourself over God, you may not realize it, but what you're doing is you are striking a blow at the character of God and at the word of God. And what you're saying is, God, I know that you emptied heaven of your greatest treasure and that you executed your own son for me, but I don't think you can be first. I think I know better. And I would have to think that's wildly offensive to a heavenly father. I would have to think he's not okay with that. So here's my encouragement to you. I'm done. My encouragement to you is to actually take our upgrade culture, we mentioned that a little while ago, and to use it in a positive way. Why don't you upgrade where God is on the priority list of your life, okay? Why don't you upgrade the place that he holds in your schedule? Why don't you upgrade your trust in him? Why don't you put more of your heart into his hands? I'm pretty certain, based on the promises of Scripture, that he won't do you wrong if you do that. There's an old story about Queen Elizabeth I, and she wanted to have a voyage over to the New World. The world had relatively recently been discovered with Columbus, and she wanted to send some ships over. So she petitioned a businessman in England to help with the voyage, and she told him flat out, face to face, I think that you have a skill set that would help us with a particular aspect of this journey, and I want you to go on this journey. It'll be long, it'll be hard, it won't be easy, it won't, it won't even be safe, but I want you to go. And the businessman said, I'm, I'm willing to, to launch out, to not be safe, to do these things, but my, my concern is my business. I just started a brand new business, and honestly, it's at a tender spot. And I know that if I leave on this journey, it's not going to be a weak journey, it's going to be a long time. I know that it just, it'll flounder. It won't make it. I know it won't make it. And Queen Elizabeth looked at this businessman and she said, you mind my business and I'll mind your business. And at that moment, the fear that this man felt left him because he thought to himself, here is the queen, okay? Here is a monarch of absolute power and authority and wealth saying, if you will if you will mind my business, I will mind yours. And he said, what a deal. What a deal. And I would submit to you that what Haggai calls the people to, what the word of God calls you and I to as Christians, is the same deal. Listen, it's the same deal. What God is saying is, mind my business, put me first, I'll mind yours. He's saying what Jesus said in Matthew. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Put him first. Prioritize him. Don't, don't offer a lame duck excuse. Do it. Act on it. Father, let's, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we come to you asking you to take this little snippet of Scripture, these five verses, and to massage them into our hearts. Lord, you know as well as I do that I need these verses just as much as any other person. And that I am just as prone to wander and to deprioritize you. And Lord, I thank you for your grace that you love us so much that you will chase us down and win us back and convict us and step on our toes at times. And Lord, I pray that you would do that for us on a continual basis. We're telling you that we want you to be first. We want you to be preeminent. We don't want you to be competing with other allegiances, Lord, we want you to be first. Help us to commit to this wholeheartedly. I'm going to ask you right now just to remain in the spirit of prayer. And I want to give you, the Christians in the room, an opportunity to respond. We do this almost every week. We have some space, and the space is designed for you to actually have a time of confession even. Just to go to God and, and tell him, Lord, I've been wrong here and here and here. And I've, I don't want to, I don't want to be like the people that just go by popular opinion. I don't want, I want to keep procrastinating. I want to commit to it. I think you know the specific ways he's spoken to you. So you go to him and you talk. Praise him for being the Lord of hosts and just thank him for being big and mighty and strong and awesome and gracious and merciful and love on him. If you're in the room and you are not a Christian, and what I mean by I'm not a Christian, I mean you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't know that heaven would be your home. You don't know that Jesus has ever come into your life and claimed you.
I want to give you the opportunity right now to do this. You say, why would I do that? Why would I put him first? Why would I make him Lord? At least part of the reason is because he did prioritize you in a way. When he dies on the cross for your sins, he is, he is, he is placing value on you. He is, in a sense, elevating you. And if he would do that for you, if he would give his life for you, if he would leave heaven for you, it would make sense that we would trust him and that we would prioritize him. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus, that's the place to start. You say, Pastor, how do I do that? Very simple. You call out to him right now, right, right there where you sit, by faith. You ask him to come into your life and be Lord. I want you right now, if you've never prayed, I want to lead you in a prayer just to do exactly that, to call to him and ask him to save you. I want you to know it doesn't have to be these exact words, but if you will genuinely ask him to from the heart, he will. And if you'd like to, pray something like this. Just say, Jesus, today I want you to be number one. I want you to be Lord and in control of my life. I surrender to you and I tell you, I trust you and I put my faith in you. I put my faith in you to forgive and cleanse my sins. I put my faith in you to give me a home in heaven. And I put my faith in you to guide my life from this day forward. Jesus, I'm trusting you and only you. If you'll mean that sincerely, he will save you, I promise. Jesus, one final time we come to you thanking you for your grace and your mercy and your just how long-suffering you are with us. Lord, we acknowledge that to put you in second or third or last place is in fact a slap in the face. But Lord, you endure those slaps and you, you endure that denigration so often patiently and lovingly and graciously from us. Thank you. Thank you for having a heart to discipline us and to bring us back. Jesus, thank you for being the one that we can trust. The Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the powerful, mighty one, we tell you that we want you to be first. Sit on the throne of our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen. Church, I love you. Let's spend our final few moments just praising the Lord and singing with Matt. And let's do it from the heart this morning, not half-hearted. Let's do it sincerely from the heart. Sing with Matt, would you?